She wanted to be in theatre, but became doubtful about the prospects of a steady income. Still, she was attracted to dynamic and thoughtful communication, so she became interested in the psychological development of Americans, and moreover, in the psychology of democracy, or put another way, the habits of a free mind. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Watching America All my life It's panic in America Oh, 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 oh It's trouble in America From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Pamela Pereski, PhD, is visiting senior research associate at the Stefanovic Institute on the Formation of Knowledge at the University of Chicago. She is also the senior scholar at the Network Contagion Research Institute and a frequent contributor to Psychology Today. She was also one of the lead researchers on the New York Times bestseller, The Coddling of the American Mind. Her latest work is entitled The Habits of a Free Mind. Psychology for Democracy. She has earned a PhD in Human Development and Psychology from the University of Chicago, and prior to her interdisciplinary PhD, Dr. Bresky earned a master's degree in clinical psychology and a bachelor's degree in anthropology. She is concerned about people living in the United States having a good life, a fair life, an open life, a considerate life, and a kind and grateful life. Dr. Pamela Perinsky. Welcome to Watching America. May I call you Pamela? Of course. Pamela, where, where did you actually grow up? Where was your, your, your uh, point of genesis origination? First of all, thank you for having me. This is such a lovely show. I really enjoy listening to it myself. So I grew up in Massachusetts, and, uh, and then I uh, went to college in New York, and I went to graduate school in California, and then I went to graduate school again in Chicago. How did you know that you wanted to pursue the things that you actually wound up pursuing? Well, that is such an interesting question. Um, I didn't. And um, uh, it, it just, I sort of fell into pursuing the things that I've pursued. I actually, for my entire childhood, wanted to be an actress, musical theater in particular. And um, what, dis- what dissuaded you? <laughs> reality, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a hard life to be, even to be an, uh, to be a working actor uh, where you can, mm. you know, even if you support yourself through acting, most actors who can support themselves through their acting are not actors whose names we know. Right. Yeah. Extremely precarious. Yeah. yeah. I sort yeah. of said to myself at one point, you know, that if I could ever see myself being happy doing something else, I should do whatever that other thing is. And I had taken a lot of psychology classes in college. I majored in anthropology and I was really interested in, you know, what makes people tick, which you sort of have to be as an actor anyway. Both, both fields require character observation, um, right. both as a psychologist and also uh, certainly as an actor. It's, it's behavioral observation in the case of the actor reproducing it. 
Yes. And, and psychology also is about um, understanding motivation, which is something that, that actors need to know. Stanislavski, um, yes. Uh-huh. And understanding emotion and understanding how emotions are represented. And all these things were things that I was interested in. And I was also really interested in how people lead really extraordinary lives. Like what, what makes for an extraordinary life? Or another way to put it is, what's a life worth living? And um, so I decided that I would, I would go into clinical psychology and uh, be a psychotherapist. And I did my training for that and got my degree. And I had worked with couples and families and individuals um, I was especially interested in marriage counseling, and um, but I wasn't married, and I didn't have kids, and I had very little life experience, and I'd only had a very small amount of training and, and a, a two-year degree, and I thought, you know, I, I'm not sure that I have enough background or, or whatever. I mean, literally, the thought I had in words was, I will be a danger to society. So I um, <laughs> decided to get a PhD. And uh, I went to the uh, University of Chicago, where there was this really interesting program called the Committee on Human Development, which yes. allowed the opportunity to do a, a sort of a dual degree in psychology and human development. And I entered thinking I was going to do the clinical track. But I was so interested in the work of Mike Csikszentmihalyi, who authored Flow, his, his construct of Flow uh, is about optimal experience. And it's really about happiness or a kind of happiness um, uh, that has to do with engagement. Well, let's, let's start there if we, if we can. Um, sure. You know, it's, it is a cliche, but it, it, like so many cliches, it's a cliche because it's true. Happiness seems to be almost universally, uh, for many people, elusive. Uh, mm -hmm. And it is, some people would say it's un an unattainable state. But according to what you've just stated, and this, this person who is a, um, certainly a great influence on you, that wouldn't seem to be the case. Uh, I, I hear in, in this declaration on your part that there is perhaps an ability, a way to, if you will, construct favorable circumstances that may produce happiness. How does one do that? Uh, that's very interesting. Well, so you pointed to something important when you started about happiness being elusive. Um, and also the measurement of happiness is somewhat elusive uh, because we're not really always sure what we're measuring. Um, when you ask people how happy they are, it turns out that often what you're measuring is more their mood than a, than a consistent state. And what I was really interested in was the sort of eudaimonic experience, what we might call leading a fulfilling life, which is not about moments of happiness. It's not even just a string of moments of happiness, though, you, you know, hopefully you do have those moments and hopefully, hopefully you have lots of them. Um, but that's, it's really about something else, about leading a life worth living. But at the end of your life, when you look back to you say, I'm, I'm satisfied that I, I've, led, I've led a life that I'm happy to have led. That obviously doesn't mean you haven't made mistakes or you haven't failed or you haven't had obstacles, but, um, but that overall, when you look back, you evaluate your life as having been meaningful, as having been worthwhile. So that's, that was sort of what I was looking for, but I didn't know that's what I was looking for in wanting to study with Mike. 
um, and wanting to look at flow. And flow is really about an experience, but the experience is not just about feeling happy. And in fact, the experience of flow is an experience when you've, you've sort of lost consciousness of self. So you're not really actually feeling happy in the moment because you're not aware of your feelings in the moment. And it's, it's a, almost like a transcendent state. Okay, so it is a varied form, and I'm not trying to be trivial here, of, from the way you're prescribing it or, or suggesting, of uh, losing oneself. Is that a component of it? <laughs> that's exactly right. In fact, that's, a, that's the, the working title of a manuscript that I never published was Losing Ourselves how the pursuit of happiness makes us less happy. Um, yes. But yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's about like when you, whenever you're, you're so fully immersed in something that you're doing that you lose sense of, of time and uh, place and self like that, that is that experience. Buddhists call it one pointedness of mind. Um, it's a, a sort of merging of action and awareness. Um, and, you know, the neurology behind it is probably something about the fact that we can only hold in our working memory a certain number of things. Usually people talk about it as seven plus or minus two items in your, in your working memory. Part of the uh, definition of flow is that, that um, the condition that usually sparks the experience of flow is one in which you're challenged just above your abilities, enough that you need to stretch yourself so that your skill level is up to the challenge, but not so much that you can easily do it without effort. Um, and that also there's immediate feedback and you, you can sort of assess how you're doing and you can continue to improve. So that experience is so engrossing in a way because you have to hold all of those things that you need in your working memory and you don't have room in your working memory for a sense of self, for a contact with your emotions, for a consciousness of time or place, those things have to be set aside so that you can hold all those other things in your working memory. So that's that. That's sort of the unpacking of the experience. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I am delighted, thrilled to have as my guest, Dr. Pamela Pereski. Uh, she is an expert on many things related to, to the human experience. And of late, she has concentrated on the habits of a free mind, and in a sense, it's towards a, a psychology for democracy, which we'll get into uh, momentarily. Uh, it seems to me um, that the people that are self-obsessed, and, and I don't mean this in a judgment sense, because I actually have sympathy for them, but the people who you know uh, are contemplating, as the expression used to be in the 1970s, contemplating their navel, not to put down anyone's navel or contemplation of any sort, um, right. They tend to be perpetually unhappy, and it is those that look outward that find, as I've witnessed at least, resolve. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a bad day or a bad season or, frankly, a bad decade, but there is something inherently healthy about looking beyond oneself, um, mm -hmm. which, is, which is healing of, of its own. Let me just give you a, a quick synopsis of this. I teach in my other life filmmaking. So it's all communication courses, screenwriting, filmmaking, film production, uh, all the aspects. But I also teach as a bread and butter course once in a while, public speaking. And whenever I have students who are nervous about public speaking, I say, what are you thinking about? And they go, oh, I'm thinking about the audience. And I say, no, you're not. 
Yes, I am. I'm thinking about the audience. I said, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. You're actually thinking about yourself. Yeah. You're thinking about what the audience thinks of you. Yeah. But if you would just think about the audience, truly think about them, reaching them, giving them a present of your presentation, your nervousness and anxiety will subside. Now, that's a, a micro example, but I think it is scalable to the macro. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really a brilliant insight. Um, and I don't think that I've ever heard anybody say that about public speaking, but it is a brilliant insight. And, and it's, it's applicable in so many ways that the, the things that give our lives meaning are not the things that are self-interested. They're the things that we do for other people. They're the things that we do for a cause or um, to make a difference. Um, and so, I mean, that's just a brilliant insight. If as a public speaker, you have an intention to shift people in some way or to leave people in a better place than when they started, or even when you're just having a conversation with another person, if your intention is to leave people with an experience that's positive for them, then your uh, way of being is going to be very different than if your intention is to look good or to impress them. What was the uh, elements that you wanted to add to flow in your own academic experience that you, you just said, okay, uh, I appreciate this, this concept uh, to the fullest, but I think it can be advanced in this way or that way. And when you arrived at that, what, what was your conclusion? There are two parts to that answer. Um, the first is that when I was doing the research, I noticed at the time, this was in the mid-90s, that um, nobody had yet looked at flow in marriage. And I had just come from a background of marriage counseling, you know, and clinical psychology. So I was interested in how, how this showed up. It, it was actually not that nobody had looked at it, but nobody had really found a lot of evidence of flow happening in marriage. And that was surprising to me because I thought, you know, these, these very positive experiences that people have would really probably need to happen with married couples in order for married couples to want to stay together. Um, so my dissertation was about flow in marriage. And what I realized was that the questions that identified the flow condition were something like, um, how much uh, skill did you have for this activity or something like that? And then the next question was, um, how challenging was that activity? And what I realized was that these aren't concepts that we think about when we, when we think about relationships, when we think about interpersonal relationships. We don't tend to think that interpersonal relationships require skill. And we also think of challenge in sort of a different way relationally. So for example, if I asked you, let's say you played chess. If I said, how was your chess playing today? And you said challenging, that would be interesting. If you played cello, how, how was the cello playing that you did today? And you said challenging, that could still be positive. You know, how was your tennis game challenging? Well, it's still fine, right? But if I say, how's your marriage? And you say challenging, that, that's generally speaking considered a negative assessment. So we have this idea yes, yeah. that our, our interpersonal relationships, and in particular our marriages, should just be easy. 
I mean, we know sort of theoretically that they require work, but we don't actually understand what work that is that they require. And we don't have the skills or we can't identify what those skills are. So that was what I was at first interested in examining. And then as I finished my doctorate and I was looking more at what constructs a meaningful life, and I started to recognize more of all the different ways in which we interact with other people, um, I started to see that these divides that we notice now, the, the polarization um, and you know all kinds of divides, whether they're religious divides or, or military and civilian divide, um, or ideological divides, what we, what we aren't doing is taking the wisdom and knowledge that we have from repairing interpersonal relationships and applying them to those kinds of relationships. Um, so that was one of the things that interested me and I thought I could you know, maybe use the, the wisdom and the insight from uh, Mike's work about engagement and involvement and flow and um, apply them to areas that have to do with interpersonal relationships. Um, and I sort of ended up in this, in this trajectory working in leadership and then out of leadership working at the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education and in this area of freedom of speech and conflict that has to do with ideology. I have had as a guest uh, uh, many of the people, or some of the people, I should say, uh, that are in your circle. Um, for instance, Jonathan Hype, I've interviewed him, yeah. uh, co-author Greg, um, Peter Bogosian, uh, all friends yeah. to the program here. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed them. Part of your work seems to be trying to give people the opportunity or the license to try and understand the other um, without rejection. But there was an interesting phrasing here um, that I that I saw related to you, and it uh, talks about the habits of a free mind as a toolkit for engaging across lines of difference without feeling traumatized and without dehumanizing others. Yeah. I want to push a little bit on the question of why should people feel traumatized? I'm not saying that you think they should, but why do people at all in this day and age feel traumatized by simply encountering others with a different view. To me, uh, and now I am going to sound judgmental, I don't mean to, I'm just being earnest and honest. It sounds incredibly primitive that anybody uh, would feel traumatized by simply encountering others with different thought. Yeah, so for people who um, have a very strong sense of the difference between words and violence, for example, for people who have a very strong sense of the importance of disagreement, it does sound just like people are being fragile. Um, and, yes. you know, one yes. of the, so that, you know, as, as you spoke to Greg and, and John about their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Which, incidentally, I want to re-emphasize to the audience that you were the primary researcher for that for that tome. Yeah, and boy, was that a fun project! That was absolutely fascinating, and I, I just enjoyed working with Greg and John tremendously. Um, and when we were working on that, the three what we call the three great untruths had to do with these these things that Greg and John Greg in particular had started to notice on college campuses that were sort of mental habits that were underlying the problems of people feeling traumatized 
by words, by the presence of speakers, and, and this sort of hostility that people have for people who disagree with them. And those three, just to remind your listeners in case they read the book but don't remember or in case they haven't read the book, the first was the untruth of fragility, which is encapsulated in this sort of false maxim, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And then the second untruth was the untruth of emotional reasoning, which was encapsulated in the maxim, always trust your feelings. And then the third one was the great untruth of us versus them, encapsulated in the maxim, uh, life is a battle between good people and evil people. And those really are sort of unconscious, fundamental premises on which a lot of this seems to rest. And it's not something to blame people for. It's, it's very natural. These are tribal instincts. And um, what we're seeing is a, a sort of reversion to tribal thinking, which is very destructive for democratic norms. It's very destructive for pluralism. This idea that everyone should think the same, that people who don't think the same must be evil, that they must be you know, cut out of, of your life if they don't have the right ideas and that their ideas are traumatizing to you. There was a very telling, I'm sure you're aware of it, um, survey which was just released, and I'm racking my brains here to try and remember who did it, but um, it's, it's a bona fide large sample of people without question, we're talking thousands and thousands, who asked the question of both Democrats and Republicans, what are they most concerned about at the moment? And I was astonished to see, as were many people, that among Democrats, their biggest fear, as they describe it uh, in the survey, is between 73 to 78% of Democrats fear people who voted for Donald Trump. Now, I don't mind people, you know, fearing uh, or not liking, at least, or subscribing to anything to do with Donald Trump. There's a lot of things I wouldn't subscribe to regarding that man uh, either. But on the other hand, you are in essence saying that 73 to 78% of the American public, uh, which were like, a, I don't know what the figure was, uh, 75 million people, voted for somebody that 78% of the other side fear. So, in other words, we yeah. now have. Uh, this incredible gulf, discord, chasm, schism between persons who simply think differently and to the point that they're literally afraid of the other side, that they think they're going right. to be, I don't know if it just, you know, uh, harkens back to what happened on January the 6th, but certainly that's not indicative of any group, nor is ever all the rights of the last summer indicative of any one political group. There's There's going to be uh, specious and, and questionable personalities related to any topic or any thought pattern. How do we amend this, Pamela? How is how is this corrected? Well, the first thing is, I think, to have compassion for the the people who who fear Trump voters, and to have compassion if you are uh, one of those people. To try to have compassion for the people who voted in the way that you don't like, and, and that is actually fundamental and difficult. You know, the first thing to say is that the sort of operating principle for people who fear Trump voters is moral pollution. Moral pollution is an emotional reaction to certain taboos. 
And this, I think, is a an experience that has become strengthened over time as our um, affective polarization has gotten worse. So uh, even though we actually don't seem to disagree as much as we think we do uh, on yes. political yeah. issues, you know, the uh, people that more in common have done some great research on, on how we uh, fall out in political positions and how there's a, a big perception gap between what we think the other side thinks and what they actually think. Um, right. But yes. this perception gap feeds into what's called affective polarization. That's this hostility and distrust and dislike of people who vote differently than you do, people who are in the opposite ideological camp. And yeah, because we're, we're, if I may interject, we're living in a climate yeah. now. I mean, I feel it on this show. Uh, if I if I defend Biden, I'm going to get assailed by people. Uh, and if mm-hmm. I do the same for Trump or for you know uh, the Jack in the Box on the on the label of Jack in the Box, uh, I'm going to get the same thing. I once had a guest earlier in in the uh, seasons of this show, and I said uh, he was not he didn't view uh, Barack Obama very favorably. Put it that way. And I said, well, mm-hmm. is there nothing good that you can recognize in the man? Long pause, which we had to edit, incidentally. Very, very long pause. He goes, <laughs> ah, oh, ah, oh. and I said, come on, there, there isn't anything admirable at all that you, can't, you, that you can't find in Barack Obama as a human being. Well, I suppose he loves his kids. Okay, and it, I, I just, but I've experienced it the other way too. I mean, you know, um, on on the other side, one dare not say anything nice uh, about Melania Trump. So it's right. it's sad. I mean, it's it's not just. I think there is a scary element to it, but it's also incredibly sad. And I, I, I you know, I, I probably shouldn't say this again, but it gets back to a primitiveness that astounds me that it's become part of. And I'm really sad to say this, the contemporary American experience. And I love this nation so much and I love its people. But are you hopeful? Well, first, let me say that when what you're calling primitive is actually primitive. I mean, it, it's primitive from the standpoint of it's a it's a, a sort of instinct that we all share. And it's um, somehow being operationalized more now. Um, but but what you're pointing to about not being able to say something nice is that that's exactly the the way that moral pollution works. That there is something that is taboo, and anything that touches that taboo is contaminated, is morally contaminated. And any person who touches that thing or is too close to that thing or too close to the taboo is also morally contaminated. So if you think about it, like the way that children play this game about cooties, which is a really awful mean game that they play where one kid Mm -hmm. has cooties, right? Mm -hmm. And when one kid has cooties, everybody has to avoid that kid. Anybody who touches that kid then has cooties too. And everybody has to avoid that kid. I was, I always was the kid who had the cooties, you know, (laughs) I want to reassure you. I washed profusely. It's okay now. (laughs) Well, and I, I do think that, you know, people who have, experienced this, um, you know, been bullied or um, in in some other way, experienced something like this, um, may be more sensitive to people 
experiencing it and may then have the ability to sort of detach from the impulse to operate on this realm of, of moral pollution. But, but just think about it like um, as if an idea or a word is like COVID. And so now you have to operate to avoid that thing just the way you would avoid COVID. If somebody touches that, you don't want to be near them. Now, the difference is that with a physical contagion, there are ways to purify. You know, you can wash your hands. Um, at a certain point, the, the coronavirus decays and is no longer, you know, contagious on a surface. So you can touch that thing again. And it used to be the case that people could sort of enact um, purification rituals, like certain kinds of apologies that would rid themselves of the moral stain. Um, so earlier in the iteration of people being morally contaminated by using the wrong word or by, by having the wrong idea, if they appropriately apologized in something like, I acknowledge that I have harmed people, it really all has to do with harm. Um, I, I acknowledge that I've harmed people. Um, there was no excuse um, I, I promise to do better or I promise to be better. And then sometimes maybe a fourth element of, of what they were going to do in, um, in sort of punishing themselves so that you didn't need to punish them. Um, and yes. then it would be over and that, that moral stain was done. Now we're seeing that, that it doesn't appear possible anymore to rid oneself of the moral stain, or at least it, it, it seems like it's no longer possible for people to rid themselves of that moral stain. So for example, um, James Bennett, who was very friendly to and very sympathetic to the claims of harm that people made for um, publishing certain ideas, but he also for a period of time held firm to publishing things that were uh, really distasteful to many people at the New York Times. Uh, but when he published the Tom Cotton op-ed and there was this huge blowback, and at that time people made claims that they were made unsafe, that, that their, their actual lives were put in, in danger by publishing that op-ed. Now, you know, we all know that no one's life is put in danger by the act of publishing an op-ed. What would what could put somebody's life in danger is if people agree with a particular policy and then decide to enact it, or if people agree with a certain way of thinking and decide to become violent as a result. Um, but the actual publishing of an op-ed doesn't put anybody's life in danger. Um, so some people have pointed out, and I picked this up in, in uh, writing about this, that this was actually a way of making that claim a workplace safety claim in order to be able to complain about the New York Times on social media without violating their social media professional policies. Um, but in any case, it's still this, uh, the, we're in the realm of safety and danger, right? And, and the confusion that people have is that um, it really does feel that way. When, when there is a moral transgression, it really does feel to people like they're in danger 
because of this moral transgression. And part of that has to do with how, how we have increasingly identified our ideological views uh, as part of our self. You know, that's a, a fundamental part of our social identity now is our partisan identification. Um, and when we do that, then a threat to that is a threat to us. And it doesn't feel any different in the brain. A, a way of having compassion for people who seem to be irrational is to understand that we all do this, only we can't see it when we're doing it ourselves. We can only see it when other people are doing it. And the other part of that is that um, the ritual purification not being available any longer meant that James Bennett had to leave the New York Times. He could no longer be part of that group. He couldn't belong to that tribe any longer. Because if he had stayed there, he would have contaminated the entire organization morally from the standpoint of this, this sort of paradigm. So if you think of it that way, you can see how that operates in all different ways. And to get back to what you were saying about your inability to, to say something nice about somebody in the, uh, in the company of people who revile that person, when that happens, you can be sure that it is a moral transgression for them. It's not about a, uh, a way of thinking that's, you know, academic or in fact, people will often say, you know, my life or, you know, uh, the, the existence of my group of people is not an academic exercise, right? So when we're trying to have a conversation that truly is an academic exercise, like does this policy work better than that policy? Um, it doesn't show up for people like a valid academic exercise if what they're relating to is the moral world instead of the world of, of transactions or, or policies. You speak about um, moral violation, and that's why people don't want to be associated or, or perhaps even have a propensity to attack uh, a persona when mentioned. But how much of it is really a sense of moral uh, violation on some level, or how much of it perhaps, at least in, in some occasions, is just simply a matter of fashion? Uh, and what I mean by that, certain people are popular. And if you support that person, then you're going to be favorably received. I mean, it gets back to the classroom and the cuties. Uh, there's the kid that everybody wants to be friends with because that kid has the power. And if you have the temerity to say, no, I'm, I'm not wholly on board with that person, uh, then you're attacked. So, I mean, I, I think much of our politics on both sides is an issue of, of fashion and like, okay, I'm, I'm with the safe group now. And it does become tribal um, without question. Let me just take a real fast, weird turn in this interview. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Well, you've listened to the previous program, so you, you know to expect this. We have done a show, uh, and I've worked on a show, which deals with people who have had out-of-body life experiences or, if you will, uh, near-death experiences. And very typical, besides the leaving the body and seeing the you know proverbial white tunnel and what have you, many people experience a point where they have uh, a revelation of their life, their prior uh, life to that point. And they can see all the different incidents. And some people say it's like a hologram and you know it's just they can see everything in their life. But many people say, I saw all those events, not purely from my vantage point, 
but from the feelings and vantage points of the other people too. I could feel their feelings. Okay, I was aware of how they felt in prior encounters, which I had never considered. I'm not talking about in a precious way where we don't offend each other. Uh, I think that we, you know, the U.S. Constitution doesn't guarantee we won't be offended. But I, I, I think we failed to recognize the feeling element of those with whom we, we don't agree. Uh, and I think that that is perhaps a major handicap with us not being able to converse. And I just want to know what you think about that. I think that's absolutely right. In fact, what, what the word compassion comes from is the idea of suffering with somebody. Yes. Um, the first and most important thing is the only way to be able to re- relate to another person's suffering is to see them as a human being. Yes. And, and that's the, the thing that we've lost, I think, contact with is that these people who we feel are so distant from us. For example, if you're one of the people who thinks that um, that you need to fear Trump voters, it's a very small step from fearing Trump voters to dehumanizing them. And if we can rehumanize the people with whom we disagree, that takes us a, a good bit of the way to being able to engage with them outside of this realm of moral purity and moral pollution. And the thing that you said too about um, uh, social positioning and fashion and that sort of thing, it's a good point. Uh, but I think the, the sort of maybe compassionate way to look at it is to remember that we all operate in a prestige economy. We can't escape it. Um, whatever world we live in, whether it's a middle school uh, and you're you know, 12, or it's Hollywood, or it's politics, or a campus, or wherever you're living, and your group of friends and your network and everyone you know is operating in a prestige economy. We all have social capital that we gain by being seen a certain way. And we lose it by being seen a different way. We can spend it on people and hope that we don't lose it forever. Um, But it takes nothing to support somebody who has a lot of status. It doesn't cost anything. But it's a risk to support somebody who is either being attacked or just is low on the social totem pole doesn't have a lot of prestige. This really is, was like our entry point um, to this conversation where we spoke about, you spoke about in particular, the concept of losing oneself uh, for, for others, not to deny yeah. that you exist and that you have needs, you know, the hierarchy of needs and all that still is in play. But um, non, nonetheless, to lose oneself, even if momentarily with its, with its benefits, if you lose oneself won't you naturally gravitate towards the correct thing to do? Uh, as far as in the example that you gave, you know, um, not being afraid to be associated with the underling or the person who's not the most popular at the moment, because you're losing yourself. You say, okay, in a way, yes, I, I don't want to be completely considered the dreg of the earth, but um, my status will be sound within myself and my own character because I'm, I'm truly doing what I think is correct 
rather than what is merely expedient or profitable? Yeah, so I think that um, I, I hesitate to use the term losing oneself for that because I use that really only to express the sense of uh, loss of consciousness of self in, or in a temperance of ego. Sort of, I think temperance right? of yes. ego. Would, yeah. but, but a sort of transcendence, you know, sort of thinking in terms that go beyond one's self-interest for sure then allows us to see ways of behaving and actions to take that we wouldn't be able to see and we wouldn't want to take if we were concerned just with our own self-interest. And yes, it does go back to that. I mean, a prestige economy is... Status. It, it is. It's, it's status. And one way that we can see that social media has sort of corrupted our our civil and democratic norms is that it has highlighted to a, a very large degree the ways in which we are driven by prestige. So we want lots of likes on our posts. We want lots of followers. Um, and there's even this, this sort of understanding, tacit or explicit, that you should have very few people you're following and lots of people follow you. And that's sort of the very cool group to be in. If you're just joining us, I am sorry for you because you <laughs> missed a wonderful uh, uh, opportunity to hear a, a person of depth and insight. I'm talking about Dr. Pamela Pareski. Uh, her latest work is entitled Habits of a Free Mind. Now, I feel I've been somewhat neglectful, Pamela, regarding that. Um, as succinctly as you feel comfortable, what are the key habits of a free mind? I'm glad you've asked that. Um, so the habits of a free mind, uh, first of all, it's still a, a work in progress. Um, but the way that I envision it is that uh, there are three sort of broad categories of habits, courage, curiosity, and compassion. And those three are the polar opposites of the three great untruths in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. So if you think about the um, great untruth of fragility, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, then courage is the opposite of that. And instead of certitude, instead of always trusting your feelings and the great untruth of emotional reasoning, curiosity is the antidote to that. And instead of us versus them thinking, where you would think life is a battle between good people and evil people, compassion destroys that kind of view. So those are the three sort of overarching habits. Then when you start to practice those things, um, so what we were talking about just a minute ago, as far as standing up for somebody, for example, spending your social capital on somebody uh, who has lower status or someone who is being maligned unfairly, um, when you're willing to spend social capital like that, you're risking something. That takes courage, especially right now and especially on college campuses. We see a lot of people who are willing to privately communicate with somebody who's being, you know, we're now calling it canceled or if there's a cancellation attempt on somebody, um, whether it's on a college campus or elsewhere, people will privately message that person and privately support them but they're too fearful to publicly support yeah. them. In the book, yes. we talked most about um, the, the kind of 
lack of understanding of anti-fragility that was that was underlying the kinds of things we were seeing on campus where people were saying that they felt traumatized by what other people were saying. Well, the same applies for people who are unwilling to stand up for people who are being attacked by those people. Well, we can't we can't say, well, those people who are attacking somebody because they say what that other person said is making them feel unsafe. Well, those people are fragile, but the people who are afraid to stand up for that person aren't. No, I, I mean, it's all the same thing. It, it rests on the same foundation of understanding that we do need to uh, put ourselves at risk and that that's actually part of the human condition. It's part of the process of being human is to constantly stretch ourselves and put ourselves at risk. And then what, I mean, these things, you know, with these three habits, they interact and they reinforce each other, just like their opposites do. So one of the things that we're, we want those people who claim that they feel unsafe, and I, I don't reject that they do. I mean, I actually had an experience myself where somebody said something to me that, even though I was alone on a, on a Zoom um, on my computer, I started to feel my heart race. I felt my face flush. I had all of the physical experiences of feeling unsafe, but I also had the sort of metacognition that you know, wasn't that interesting. You know, I'm not unsafe, but I do feel unsafe. And so understanding the difference between the feeling of being unsafe and actually being unsafe is a good first step in being able to have the courage to uh, say something or hear something. Um, and and then the interest in hearing what other people have to say has to rest on kind of loosening our sense of certitude that we know everything, you know, loosening that sense that we're, we're positive, that we're right. But even if we can't loosen that, at least to say, well, I'm open to hearing it because I know it's not going to kill me and it's not going to hurt me to hear what that person has to say. And underneath that, if we can have compassion for that person who believes things or says things that we find abhorrent, if we can humanize that person, then that makes it possible for us to listen to them. If we can't humanize people who have the views that we don't like, there's no possibility of even listening to them because why would you listen to a monster? Why would you listen to somebody who is evil? There's, there's just no reason, right? So we really do need to put all of these things together and remind ourselves uh, that if we want yes. to improve our, our imperfect union, we have to understand where other people are coming from. I'd like to go back and make reference to something which you shared, which was uh, really quite cardinal and important to you, and that was the study of relationships in marriage. Can you inflate, enlarge the concepts that you discovered in marriage counseling and, and research to the nation of the United States? I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, there are some really expert marriage researchers whose names are Paul and Julie Gottman, and um, they have identified three sort of general principles for a really good marriage. And those three things are things that I think we can apply to our way of thinking about our ideological opponents and our relationship with them, either from an individual standpoint or 
you know, as, as partisans. The first thing is, is trust, um, which has to do with responsiveness. That in a marriage, you have to trust that the other person is going to be responsive to your needs and your desires. And we don't have that, right? We, we don't have right now the idea that the partisans on the other side care about our needs and our desires. If you think about why Black Lives Matter is called Black Lives Matter, it's because I think there's the idea that people who are on the other side of, of that or people who may not support the movement itself don't think that Black lives actually matter. Um, that's a, a fundamental problem that people feel that way. If you feel like your life doesn't matter, of course, you're going to be in pain. That's not being fragile. That's normal. We need to communicate in a way that allows each other to understand that we do care, that we may have different ways of expressing or uh, different policies that we prefer to solve these problems, but we do care. Um, and we want to be responsive to these needs. Um, then the second principle is the principle of commitment. And that has to do with cherishing the other person. Do we cherish the opposition? Not at all. We have to be committed to, to listening to disagreement because if nothing else, it sharpens our own thinking. You know, Brett Stevens uh, of the New York Times wrote a, a piece called The Dying Art of Disagreement. Um, and, and he said, to disagree well, you must first understand well. You have to read deeply, listen carefully, watch closely. You need to grant your adversary moral respect. Give him the intellectual benefit of doubt. Have sympathy for his motives and participate empathetically with his line of reasoning. And you need to allow for the possibility that you might yet be persuaded of what he has to say. That's missing entirely because we're so certain that we're right and the other side is wrong. And then the third thing is a sense of calm, which has to do with non-defensiveness. So that when the other side criticizes us, if we could hear it in a non-defensive way, we'd have a much higher likelihood of being able to bridge these divides. That's a fundamental principle of, of argument is that you can't take it personally. You know, this is the thing that I was talking about before. When, when somebody attacks an idea that we hold dear, we have identified so closely with our political ideology that it feels like they're attacking us. And then we defend ourselves. If we can separate ourselves from our thoughts, if we can understand that ideas are not the same thing as a person, but they're things, they're objects. Ideas are objects that we hold. We can hold two opposing ideas and compare them. But when we're operating in a world of moral pollution, we can't touch that other idea. We're not allowed to touch it even for the purpose of being able to combat it. And when we can't do that, we lose. So those are the three ways in which the insights from marriage counseling, I think, could really help us bridge our divides. Dr. Pamela 
Paresky. About 2,000 years ago, uh, a chap stood on the hillside and he said to a large gathering of people, blessed are the peacemakers. I want to thank you, Pamela, for being a peacemaker and you have blessed us. Thank you for being a part of the American fabric. Uh, Thank you for being a significant, welcomed voice, I hope, by all sides. Thank you for your calmness, indeed, as you referenced, but your cogent clarity of thought and your ability to be both persuasive and articulate as you express it to a ready audience, of which I'm happy to be included. We've been talking to Pamela Pareski, PhD. She has been working on a particular project called Habits of a Free Mind. Seek her out, look for her online, look at her materials, get them, read them. It's profitable for all of us. Thank you, my dear. Thank you so very, very much for being a part of Watching America. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.